Welcome to Immigrantly, an experience podcast that delicately unravels the complexities of the immigrant identity in America. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, and I am so grateful that you are sharing this space with me. You are listening to my voice and my conversation with an incredible guest. And I promise you learn something important through this conversation. Now, today's episode is special. As some of you know, I am a Pakistani immigrant, but I'm also ethnically Pashtun, which is an ethnic identity that has historical and cultural ties with Afghanistan. So I've always felt this deep connection with the people of Afghanistan. In 2021, over the summer, as I was visiting my family in Pakistan, I watched along with the rest of the world as over two decades of war in Afghanistan, quote-unquote, ended in a chaotic U.S. withdrawal. The U.S. is shutting down its longest war. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country. Thousands of interpreters who worked with American forces. There are talk that they will get some sort of deal. And they also urge all countries to be willing to receive Afghan refugees and refrain from any deportations. Now, two years later, 97,000 people from Afghanistan are settled as refugees in the U.S., while there are still 10,000 in the pipeline for immigration. According to an Amnesty International report, as the Taliban took over, they conducted extrajudicial executions, arbitrary arrests, torture, and unlawful detention of perceived opponents with impunity, creating an atmosphere of fear. They quelled expression of speech and women's rights. But you know what? The situation is much more complicated. The Costs of War Project by Brown University paints a grim picture, estimating that more than 46,000 Afghan civilians lost their lives during the longest war in the U.S. history. The devastating toll of indiscriminate violence extends beyond the battlefield. U.S.-led airstrikes intended to combat terror have tragically claimed the lives of almost 4,000 individuals between 2016 and 2020, a chilling statistic that also includes almost 1,600 innocent children. Let that information sink in. Sit with it. Think about it. These figures are not just numbers. They are the stories of ordinary Afghans. Many have experienced these horrors repeatedly. And as you and I know, the collateral damage of war is beyond comprehension. There are some darker chapters that you guys may not be aware of. Reports from 2010 shed light on a secret kill team of American soldiers who callously targeted Afghan civilians, leaving behind a trail of devastation and collecting grisly trophies. Yeah, that is a fact. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, these narratives serve as a sobering reminder of the complexities of war. 
urging us to question the narratives that we are fed as we navigate these inconvenient facts. Who do we blame in all of this? Should the blame be directed at the US, the Taliban, the military-industrial complex, or our own biases? You know, guys, it becomes crucial to understand the nuances of this horrific tragedy that is war. Today, I engage with somebody who has valuable insights into this multifaceted issue, shedding light on the humanity which is often ignored behind the headlines. Andrea Smardin is an award-winning journalist and producer with decades of experience in public radio. She currently produces at KSL Podcasts, where she works on her show called Stranger Becomes Neighbor. It was a disaster, decades in the making, and the fallout landed on our doorstep in America. And now thousands of families needed homes. There were people who served our country for over 10 years and saved countless American lives. For the last week, the governor tells me his office has been getting calls nonstop with Utahns wanting to help. But how well did we deliver on that promise to help when they arrived? It, was very it follows the story of refugees from Afghanistan who landed in, of all the places, Salt Lake City, Utah, back in 2021. We learn about their experiences and hardships in settling into this new community. It was an important introspective conversation. We brought up some important nuances that I hope you can listen to, internalize, think about and ruminate over. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrea. Welcome to Immigrantly, Andrea. I'm really excited to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Glad to be here. So you live in Salt Lake City and we are going to talk a lot about Salt Lake City today. But before that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your journey, your 20 plus year journey into audio journalism Tell me, how did you get interested in it? Uh, you worked for some incredible organizations like the NPR, The Guardian. What's been the most rewarding part? Yeah, I've worked in public radio stations around the country before I landed in Salt Lake City. I love interviewing people. I love getting to hear people's stories. And it was around 2016 when I left my last reporting job where I was grappling with sort of these big societal questions, and I found that daily news wasn't the best medium for dealing with them. So at that time, I quit my job to become a podcaster. <laughs> I mean, I just felt like we were dealing with so much intense, rapid change in our society and our culture. Daily news didn't seem like the best format. I really wanted to dig into questions, deeper questions, 
in a sort of more meaningful way where we could spend time with them. So that's how I ended up moving from being a public radio reporter to being a podcaster. I want to expand this conversation a little more. Why podcasting as a medium to showcase those stories? It was right around 2016, I think, Serial, the podcast, was coming out and was really popular. This is a global tell link prepaid call from... Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. At the time, I didn't think, oh, I want to do that. It wasn't like I set out to be a podcaster. It was more like, how can I tell these stories? How can I delve into these more meaningful questions? And podcasting, I just realized, was an avenue to do that. And there was a growing audience for it. Absolutely. I am a huge fan of Serial. I believe it came out in 2013 or 14. And I remember Mm. listening to it as I would go into the city for work. I used to look forward to each week's episode. And you're right, a lot of people decided to venture into podcasting after Serial. But talk to me about differences between storytelling as a radio reporter and as a podcaster. Yeah, there's a few differences. I mean, for one thing, I get much more involved personally, I guess. It's sort of like when you're the host taking people through this journey, they want to know that you're a real person that they can trust and relate to, right? So that's been an adjustment for me moving from that reporter voice to allowing myself to be a part of the story a little bit more and get more personal. And when you're delving into something that you spend maybe a year on, and it's a story that people are spending a lot of time with, I think that matters to people where you're coming from, what's driving you, what are the questions you're trying to answer, why does it matter to you as the host, the person that's taking you on this journey, right? (laughs) So that's different. And it's also just a medium where you can tell sort of chapters of a story over time, which I love. Have you discovered anything about yourself through the process that you weren't aware of that surprised you? Hmm. I'm growing into my voice and being comfortable. I've never been comfortable in the spotlight. I love this work because I love to listen really listen, deeply listen to people to find out what the heart of the story is, what's really going on there, and then filter that through myself and then give you a story about it. And so to be sort of present to show up as myself is the hard part for me. I am very comfortable telling someone else's story (laughs) and that's where I want to be. And I like to be in the listener role. So I'm actually not comfortable being the one that's talking or that other people are looking at. It's so interesting you say that because a lot of people don't listen. They don't listen the way they should be listening, right? People like spotlight. They like to be the center of attention. So you're basically flipping the script. What is about listening that allows you to connect with others and not share your story as much? It's sort of like where I feel like I find my purpose and my connection Mm -hmm. with other people. And I think so few people are really listened to. Like if you think about your day, how often is anyone really deeply listening to what you have to say? (laughs) And you don't really expect it. People ask you how you are. You don't really expect them to want to know the real answer. They're not really interested. You're right. 
And so I find that even when it's a very difficult topic that you would assume people don't want to talk about, even traumatic things, even painful things, people are waiting for an opportunity to share that with someone if they feel like they can trust you, if they feel like it's going to be heard in good faith. I think people are waiting for that Hmm. opportunity, even if they don't realize it, right? And it's where I feel the most deeply connected to people. It feels almost sacred at times when I'm holding out the microphone and just keeping that eye contact, even through whatever it may be that people are sharing and just letting them know that I'm listening and coming back with those follow-up questions because people don't know at first often. And in the um, my most recent podcast that I was working on, it took me interviewing people over several times like almost a year before someone really started to open up to me about why she does what she does. So it sort of feels like a life purpose for me. This is a great segue into your podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor. I've been listening to some of your episodes and they're really moving. It's great piece of audio journalism. It's intimate. It's introspective. It's wintertime in Kabul, Afghanistan, early 2021. And 15-year-old Baran spent her break from school binge-watching the TV series Prison Break. But how did you find out about refugees arriving in Salt Lake City? And at what point did you decide to do a podcast about their stories? It was very present in the news when it was happening. So in August 2021, we saw these horrific images coming out of the Kabul airport when Afghanistan was being evacuated, the U.S. was pulling out, and we saw families being separated at the airport, tear gas in the air. People were so desperate to leave that they were clinging to the wings of airplanes. And it's just, it's hard to fathom that desperation when you think about it, like that you would be that desperate to leave the country. So I think a lot of us seeing that were moved, you know, Americans across the country. You know, I'm based in Salt Lake City and Utah is a really interesting place because it's a conservative leaning state that also cares deeply about refugees and immigrants and being welcoming to refugees. So our Republican governor was one of the first to send a letter to President Biden and say, we want this to be a welcoming place for refugees from Afghanistan. So he took the initiative. Yes. And so Utah wanted to be this welcoming place. And so I thought, this is interesting. Like, I want to see where this goes, because there is this immediate sort of instinctive reaction when you see the desperation be like, I want to be the one that helps you. I want to be I don't, I don't want to use the word savior, but I'm in that moment. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then what we talked about in our newsroom, in our podcast team, where we get to do more in-depth, long-term stories, we thought, well, what if we kept following this and see what happens even a few months from now? What's going to happen to these folks that arrive in Salt Lake City? And so it's a story about what happens in Utah, but I think it's a universal story. I think this happened across America in some ways. And Americans in general thought we should welcome our Afghan allies. But then how long does that last? The next news story comes along. Ukraine gets invaded by Russia. There's always something, right, that comes, the next wave. And then what happens, right? Right. 
Julia, there's so much to deconstruct in what you said, this idea of saviorism, mm-hmm. folks in the U.S. wanting to help Afghan allies. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that it was more about helping folks who had helped the U.S. military in Afghanistan and less about helping somebody because of shared humanity or for humanitarian reasons. There is a difference. We see that U.S. does not afford same kind of graciousness towards, say, Syrian refugees. Mm-hmm. And we see this dichotomy play out in our society quite mm-hmm. often. And I want to tie this to the idea of welcoming a community of refugees. What does welcoming really mean in the context of recognizing somebody's humanity versus reasserting your own moral superiority. Because sometimes I am not sure what Americans are really trying to achieve through it. Talk to me about that. Oh, gosh. Uh, there's so much there. I'm trying to figure out where to begin. <laughs> I kind of saw all aspects of this as I was following it. Right around Christmas time, there was like, oh, people really wanted to volunteer They really wanted to donate something, to give things. And that's, I don't want to pass judgment on that because there are some people who don't even care at all or do nothing, right? Right. I don't feel like I'm in a place to judge what people want to do for charity. That's a discomfort I sort of dealt with in making this podcast because there were moments where I felt like I had to say what I was thinking or feeling or noticing, but I didn't want to judge people. I don't feel like it's my role, but I... (laughs) So I think that there is this impulse to like, I want to help someone in the Christmas season in Utah, where the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is based. There's this very Christian-based desire to help. And sometimes that looks like donations or dropping off food. Material things. Yeah. Yeah. They were organizing this whole day of like delivering food to about 25 families And it was Sunday. And so everyone showed up in their church clothes and they were ready to help and they wanted to deliver boxes of food. And then they went to one hotel room where it was this man that was there without his family. And he was like, thanks for the food, but my wife and four of my children aren't here. And that's what I really need help with. (laughs) And the volunteers were like, wow, I thought I was going to deliver a box of food, but this is so much deeper. But there was a learning opportunity that day, at least for those people that were involved. And it never would have happened if someone hadn't organized this delivery of food. So it's all mixed up together. And you're absolutely right. Look, people who are donating material things Mm -hmm. are doing a great job. As you said, many people wouldn't even do that. And that's admirable to be able to give somebody something that belongs to you. That's so important. But the reason why I wanted to investigate this a little more is to unravel how it's important to look at refugees beyond material things or material Mm -hmm. needs and to have that human connection, which Mm -hmm. is so lacking, right? Because if we are welcoming somebody in our communities, how do we recognize their humanity? How do we see them as equals Mm -hmm. rather than seeing them somebody in need of help? And our role then being that of a savior. A lot of people who have helped refugees 
have had good intentions, right? Mm-hmm. But they still cannot distinguish between what it means to have that human connection versus giving material things. So how do we make sure that people are more intentional about the way they are helping refugees? That was something that I saw as I was following what happened. The human connection was important, sort of first step. And I think a lot of times people jump to, I'm going to help you, I'm going to volunteer, I'm going to donate, before they've even figured out what it is that people want or need. So I do think it is coming at it with that attitude of, I'm going to start a relationship with you. I'm going to meet you, see what I can find out. The people that I followed in this podcast were the ones who stuck with it. I mean, in the beginning, I followed some people and I saw that they fell off after a little while. It is tiring, too. Helping somebody is not easy, right? The other thing that I observed is that those people who stuck with it, they did get something out of it themselves. There was an exchange or an interchange It was a real relationship. And they were open to the idea that they might be changed by the relationship, that they might learn something, that they might receive something from the relationship. Any examples of where those who set out to help received or learned something profound? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's one character who I follow throughout the podcast, she turns out to be this very persistent volunteer, (laughs) kind of like a super volunteer. Her name is Jenny Hua, and she is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She has five children. She's a stay-at-home mom, and she moves to Utah at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, so kind of an isolating time. And she lives far away from Salt Lake City. So Salt Lake City is where all the refugee services are based and where most of the refugees are for that reason. But there was a severe affordable housing shortage and there were a few people that got caught in this. They had nowhere to go, basically. There was nowhere to put them. There was one family, they had a baby due in a matter of weeks and Jenny was trying to find them someplace to live. Hmm. And she ended up bringing them way out to her neighborhood, which is like far from refugee services, far from the friends. And they had a couple family members in Salt Lake City, but they ultimately decided it was worth trying to be out there. And Jenny reassured them that not only she, but all of her neighbors would help them with what they would need to get a car so they could get around, to get a job, all of these things that they were going to need and to have the baby and to have like a community that was going to be there to support them. So I'll just say it was a extremely white, extremely dominated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this community, just to give you a picture on the edge of the mountains. So they were just sort of like taking this risk to come out here and try this with this neighborhood. There was a family that had a basement apartment that they could use. So they came out to this neighborhood and they were completely enveloped by the community. Jenny ended up helping to deliver the baby because this Afghan woman, her name, we call her Aziza. A lot of people don't want to use their real names in the podcast. They're afraid for their family in Afghanistan. So Aziza asked her to come to the hospital to help deliver her baby. And she didn't know what to expect, I think, delivering a baby in an American hospital. So it was maybe helpful to have an American there. But 
It was remarkable to me the way the community came together around this one family. And the family itself would host parties and invite their Afghan friends from Salt Lake City to come. And there would be music and dancing and food. The family upstairs had a girl the same age. They were both eight years old. And they would go to like girls soccer games. Those two girls actually became really close friends. The community itself, all the neighbors that I talked to said, this family really brought us together. We mm. kind of didn't realize that we needed that. It was coming out of COVID. There was a common purpose there. And Jenny got tearful talking about it when it took her a while to open up to me about why she does what she does. Because at some point she's helping like 50 Afghan families around Utah. And she's just just as like a regular person. She's not a resettlement worker. It's just something she decided to do with her life. Which is remarkable, right? And I think people can be suspicious, like what are her motives? And we actually dealt with this in the editing room when we were playing these stories. People were getting judgmental about Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> in the editing room. And I think people are suspicious of do-gooders and people sometimes assume that they're trying to convert people to the religion. Maybe that's Oh, okay. I didn't even think about that. Motivation. But I spent a lot of time with Jenny and she, I will say, was religiously motivated in the sense that she's grown up in this church, which has taught her that service is so important and that you should be giving. And so she is motivated by religion, but not in the sense that like, I'm going to convert people. I'm going to do what I can to help people. And she talked to me about some profound experiences she had with some of her new friends from Afghanistan, where she said she went to a dinner, this family who had been here a little bit longer from Afghanistan, a family, I think, with five kids and the father had kind of a minimum wage job. So was still struggling themselves, but they were trying to help all of these new arrivals from Afghanistan. And Jenny became friends with this family and they invited her to dinner and she said they'd sit around on the floor and this woman was breaking bread, you know, the flatbread that they make in Afghanistan and handing it to her. And she described in tears what she was telling me about this, just just like she had never felt this kind of profound, symbolic love. She described it as as if this woman was Christ herself. Mm. But it was profoundly moving to her. And she has said she's been transformed like over the past two and a half years that she's made these new friends. She's not the same person. And yet so almost emotional to listen to this because I am ethnically Pashtun. I speak the language. Mm. I understand the culture. I mm -hmm. am from Pakistan, of course, but there's a deep, deep connection. You're all hospitable. We are all gracious. We are in many ways respectful of other people's space and cultures. Inviting somebody over for dinner or food and sharing your food with them is a very common practice. No matter how rich or poor you are, it does not matter at the end of the day. And I'm so glad that people who are working with refugees see those moments of human connection outside what we are told through news. And that may not occur to people when they think, I'm going to help a refugee, right? Yeah. <laughs> they might think about, like, I'm going to show them American culture, right? Which is, you know, helpful in its own way. Absolutely. But at the same time, you bring up such an important point, the idea or intentionality around 
I want to learn more about their culture mm-hmm. is so important. Mm-hmm. And yet not part of a lot of people's consciousness because they're like, oh, we are helping them. We are helping them assimilate or integrate or whatever you call it, right? Can I make another point about this? And this is maybe a little different direction, but this is part of what was driving my interest when I was making the podcast. And I think I'm sort of obsessed with this <laughs> idea right now, but I I feel like part of this project was turning a mirror back on American culture and what it means to be a community, what it means to be part of a community, what it means to be a welcoming community, because I think we need work. <laughs> and I guess this was what I was interested in is what was meaningful to me as I was following people is the Americans learning about what that means to them, about how to be a more welcoming culture. And they were learning from their newest neighbors from Afghanistan and sort of humbled by that, I would say. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Jenny, another point where she was kind of in tears talking about, you know, she met people at church and walking her dog and she's a social person, but her relationships just didn't have the depth that she wanted in her life and that she had gotten sort of calloused or bitter about it. You know, you keep reaching out to people, you keep hoping for these kinds of deeper relationships and not having them. And she's a stay-at-home mom, and she talked about how that's so lonely. It's a fulfilling thing, but it can be really lonely. Oh, my and gosh, And so yes. much of it you do on your own. And she said as she started meeting with new Afghan friends and helping where she could and working with other Americans to help them, those relationships had a kind of depth that she was missing. Hmm. that's sort of like what I'm after all the time in my storytelling. I'm like, where do we, how do we make those connections? How do we have that kind of community that we want in our lives, right? Andrea, I would like to extend this conversation a little because, yes, you are trying to do that through storytelling and you focused on neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. So this is your podcast called Stranger Becomes Neighbor, but then there is another podcast that you did. Yeah, Next Door Stranger. Next Door Strangers, which is about finding connection in times of division. Where students are willingly attending a workshop on how to talk to someone you disagree with. Why are you interested in this? So part of it is definitely the free food. I'm also hoping that they'll give us tactics for being able to start these conversations and still end the conversation being friends. I feel like lots of people are so polarized today that, you know, the ability to have this conversation, whether or not you agree with someone, is kind of a fading skill set in America. And so I think it's important to learn how to communicate and talk with people, whether or not you agree with them. Why do you think this connection between neighbors Mm. is so important? And why did you decide to investigate this particular dynamic. I'm really trying to get back to what we can reach in our lives, like what is literally within reach for ourselves as far as our relationships and what we can do with the one life that we're given. And I think this is where we're at now is that we are, we're online all the time. We're constantly inundated with headlines that are like one crisis after another and the sort of negativity in the news and on social media. 
And there's these sort of narratives that we're all dealing with, like these sort of ideologies that we adopt. The extremities seem like they're totally bought into these stories, right? They can sort of exist just in our head and on the network, but it's like, what is actually going on in our actual lives we lose touch with? And we start to impose these stories on everything. And I feel like we're all obsessed with like national politics, right? But it's like, what's happening right here where we are? And with the relationships with the people that we have access to. And so I guess that's what I'm really trying to get at with my obsession with neighbors (laughs) and strangers. (laughs) And it keeps going up in all my projects. And that's what was so kind of empowering for me to do this podcast. It was like an antidote for me to all the helplessness and overwhelm that you can feel if you're just sort of reading things online. Like if you're actually following people, making connections with each other and figuring out what they can do with their own lives, it's empowering and it's a little bit contagious. Mm. I think when, when one person makes a connection or a relationship, you know, it can start to spread. How has your relationship with your neighbors evolved through this journey? It's a good question. It's a good question. I'm self-conscious because I say all these things in the podcast and then I'm like, am I actually doing them or living them in my own life? I feel like I'm I'm mostly telling stories about other people. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do think it's time for me to reach out to your neighbors. <laughs> yeah, there's been some great moments of connections with my neighbors. I I will say that my neighborhood is pretty white. My husband is half Indian. He's like one person of color on the block. There's like a couple more. (laughs) (laughs) We've had some happy hours and a neighbor that has hosts these music gatherings in her home, which I love. Yeah, I'm becoming more and more aware of the importance of these things. I think I say that I'm obsessed with this. Growing up, I didn't think about it at all. And in my 20s, I didn't think this way. It took me until around 40 or almost 40 where I really started to think much more consciously about these things. So why do you think that's the case? I think it's a deep question. I think I was raised in a family where my parents left home. Their families weren't very educated, kind of stayed in their same small towns. And my parents kind of escaped in some ways, and moved up in social class, but then they're sort of separated from their families and their communities. And then my sister and I grew up, and we sort of just assumed that's what we would do. Then we go off and go to college, and then we move to some other state. And it's taken me a long time to realize the sort of poverty of connection that this breeds, the sort of what's missing in my life. I love the way you framed it, poverty of connection. And we are talking about narration, talking about storytelling. I'm pivoting a little. Mm. How much does a location or a population within that location influence the way you tell story? For example, talking about Salt Lake City, how did your narration evolve or get influenced by the fact that this story is centered in Salt Lake City versus, say, in New York or Chicago? Mm. It's a very uh, people-centered podcast in the sense that I wasn't trying to give you a comprehensive approach of like what happened to the 
of refugees from Afghanistan. It wasn't like this is what resettlement agencies do. And this is, you know, what I started meeting people and just being like that person. They're doing something interesting. They're taking charge here. There was a woman from Afghanistan who had been here for 20 years. She was clearly taking on a leadership role and helping people make connections. And that's how I met Jenny Hua, who has also <laughs> become a main character in the podcast. So it evolved organically. And these people are a product of the place that they're in. So the fact that there's so much presence with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there has to be in a place like Utah. Like, <laughs> it's such a strong cultural force. It's where a lot of the networks are formed. Like people do draw on their networks to try to figure out how to help the refugees. And that was something interesting that I observed is like how much more effective you can be if you have a network already in place hmm. or how you forge a network in order to respond to people because a limit to how much an individual can do. Right. So that all plays into it. You know, it becomes specific to the place and the people in that place and how they're shaped by the place. And, you know, Nazifa came from Afghanistan, but when she came 20 years ago, volunteers really took her under their wing, showed her American culture, made sure she understood the importance of education for reaching her goals. And those people really sort of shaped what she became, too. So I don't know if I'm totally answering your question about place, but it is something that we thought about because we thought, well, if we tell this very Utah-centered story, are other people going to want to listen to it? Because we want it to be bigger than Utah as far as the audience. And we do think it's relevant. But it's like, I only know how to tell stories in a place where people are sometimes. Yeah. What do you want people to take away from all of this? I guess I want people to be empowered to reach out and make connections, to think about what they want their communities to be and realize that they have a role to play in making that happen. Maybe with a little more humility. Yes. Yes. That's a good, <laughs> good nudge there. <laughs> yes. Yes. With an openness to maybe you're going to learn something. Maybe you're going to be changed by this. And that's a good thing. In the end, Andrea, if you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, what a hard question. I feel like that is the question that I'm trying to answer in some ways in all of my projects. I want to know what, where does our identity come from? What holds us together in our communities and as a country? Gosh, I don't know. But I like the fact that you are still processing and investigating the idea that is America. Beautiful experiment that is America. Or messy yeah. and at times difficult experiment that is America, right? Mm-hmm. Like I want to believe we're a, a nation of immigrants in a way. I just don't think that a lot of people see it that way. So I'm not sure what it is that can hold all of us together. Yeah, the promise is there, but practically, mm -hmm. I feel like we're far from it in some ways. And in some ways, yes, I've said this in the past as well. Outside Pakistan, I can't see myself living anywhere else than the U.S. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. It's your podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> why not? I like to ask the question. <laughs> What makes you feel like this is your home? Like what makes it home for you? Being myself. 
Mm. And I have learned to be myself in America. I was talking to somebody the other day and what I've realized is that America has really helped me understand who I am mm. and to investigate parts of my identity that were never apparent to me, that were never part of my consciousness. I'm almost liberated by that thought, right? And that's why America is home. It's enabled me to do that. Not that I couldn't do it in Pakistan, but somehow America pushed me <laughs> in ways that probably Pakistan didn't. Maybe I was too comfortable in Pakistan. Hmm. And because of that, this is home. And that's a more philosophical answer. But I also yeah. came in my like early 20s. So it's such an integral part of who I am now. Tell me, where can people find your podcasts? We have a website, strangerbecomesneighbor.com, where you can find all the stories there and some pictures and written stories as well as the audio. And of course, anywhere you get your podcasts, we're on Apple and Spotify and everywhere else. Thank you so much, Andrea. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. I love it. You know what? Normally, I say something in the end as part of my outro. But today, I'm not going to make any remarks, share any deep insights. I want you to reach out to me with your insights, with your thoughts, with your perspective on this war and the cost, the human cost associated with it. You can reach me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. If you don't like to write emails, just send me a voice memo and I promise I will try to play it in one of our episodes. This episode was produced by me, written by Pippa Suki Carlson and me. The editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our theme music is by Simon Hutchinson. Our editor is Paruma Chakravarti. Come back next week for another important conversation. Until then, take care.